Well, we're working our way through the book of James. After this message, I think I'll just have a couple of more sermons, and then we'll be done with the book of James. We're entering in chapter 5, and this is exactly where we were going to preach. Um, no matter what, this is the next chapter, next verse, but I think God uh, worked in such a way uh, that this is the right word for our church today, uh, based on, on the prayer of lament and psalm of lament that we, we did in our worship today and the, the events in Texas. I, I think God knew ahead of time what, what was on our minds and our hearts today, and I love when that, that happens. The title of the message, as I titled it last Saturday, before all these events ever took place, is this, Responding to Injustice. Responding to injustice. Unfortunately, injustice is everywhere, isn't it? From the over 40 million victims of human trafficking around the world, to the 1 million Muslims who are being used as slaves in concentration camps in China, to the over 360 million Christians being persecuted around the globe, to the students and teachers at Robb Elementary School who went to school last Tuesday and never came home. Injustice is an unpleasant reality in our world. As believers, our hearts should break for these people who are victims of such oppression and violence. These things shouldn't be news to us. Just just news that passes by our social media feed. They should affect us deeply. They should stir us to call upon God in prayer on behalf of the oppressed. But as sensitive as I am today, especially to those in Texas, as your pastor, I'm still tasked with the responsibility to preach to the situations of injustice represented in this room today. I'd venture to say that as sad as these major areas of injustice are around the world, and as much as we should be praying for God to rescue the victims and and to judge the oppressors, these major areas of injustice and violence can still sometimes feel very far away from us in the southwest corner of the state of Kansas. Yet on a smaller scale, those of us in the room today do face injustice in our lives. And we have. While we know that the injustice we face isn't near as severe as those in China or North Korea or Uvalde, Texas, our own injustices are still real. I'm talking about areas in which it feels like those who do wrong get ahead of those who do right. Or or being accused unfairly of doing or saying something you never did or said. Or being lied about or having your weaknesses or failures exaggerated by a former friend or an ex-spouse or a co-worker or your family. Or maybe even your own kids who are upset with you right now. Or just being taken advantage of. Maybe financially. Maybe in your marriage. God forbid even physically. Or being abandoned by a parent when you were little. Or betrayed by a spouse. Or maybe just being overlooked time and time again. Overlooked at work. Overlooked at school, overlooked at church, 
overlooked maybe even in your own home. And despite your greatest efforts to advance or, or to fit in or to feel loved or just to take the next step forward in your life, it seems like you aren't taken as seriously as others. And it's starting to feel like actual injustice to you. I've got bad news and I've got good news. The bad news is that so long as we live in a fallen world, we're going to have to endure unjust treatment from others. We do life with sinners, and that means we'll get sinned against on a fairly regular basis. But I've got good news. We serve a God who is the perfect judge. The Bible says that he pays close attention to the oppressed, whether that be the human trafficking victim in New York City, the oppressed citizen of communist country, Or someone who has simply been treated unfairly at work in liberal Kansas. If you're facing some kind of injustice, big or small, I want you to know something. God sees. God cares. God knows. This is the point James wants to make to his original readers. Who you know used to be part of his church, but they've now been forced to scatter because of religious persecution. They were facing injustice, and it often played out in their daily jobs, which is what our text speaks of. Many of these believers' only opportunity for income was to work as low-wage farmhands. Unfortunately, the people who owned these farms, they weren't fair. And I'm not talking about corporate greed unfair. I'm talking slavery unfair. Many of these men would work long hours on the farm doing hard labor and then would be constantly cheated out of a fair wage. And sadly, they couldn't do anything about it. They couldn't find another job. In fact, many of them were trapped because the same person who was their boss also provided them housing, which trapped many of them in this vicious cycle of daily injustice. There were some who tried to rise up against these forces in one way or the other. Perhaps legally going to court or or just trying to escape. But it seemed like the bad guys always won because they had more money. They had more power. They had more influence. So James, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he, he writes a paragraph of encouragement to these believers who are being oppressed at their jobs. And he starts by telling them how God responds to injustice. And then he tells them how they should respond to injustice. Let's look at the first six verses. He talks about these rich people who were oppressing the poor. Go to now, ye rich men. Weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver is cankered and the rest of them shall be a witness against you and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. Ye have heaped treasure together for the last days. Behold, the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, crieth. And the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. Ye have lived in pleasure on the earth and have been wanton. Ye have nourished your hearts as in a day of slaughter. Ye have condemned and killed the just, and he doth not resist you. This first portion of our text deals with God's response to injustice. And here it is in a sentence. God hears the cries of the oppressed and promises judgment upon the injustice you face. That is in essence what the very first six verses of James 5 is is telling us. This is how God responds to injustice. That's why James started verse 1 like he did. He tells them that they might as well, the, the oppressors, 
They might as well start weeping now. They might as well start howling now because there is great misery coming their way by the hand of God. See, these oppressors, as our text said, were guilty of hoarding their wealth when they could have been paying a fair wage. They were guilty of living a life of luxury while at the same time owning and abusing slaves. They were even guilty of murdering people who had done nothing wrong and then they were able to cover it up with their wealth. And James wanted to make it clear to them that God will deal with these oppressors for their crimes and he will deal with them in a very severe way. The punishment will fit the crime. And here's why God will judge them according to James. Because he hears the cries of the oppressed. James says, and the cries of them which, which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. This, this is good news for all of us that face injustice of any kind. When we cry unto the Lord, hear, hear me, God hears you. Psalms, the book of Psalms declares this over and over. Psalm 120, in my distress, I cried unto the Lord and he heard me. Psalm 18, 6, in my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried unto my God. He heard my voice out of his temple and my cry came before him, even into his ears. Psalms 3, 4, I cried unto the Lord with my voice and he heard me out of his holy hill. We sang Psalms 34 that said the poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. Friends, whether it's a verbal prayer to God or it's simply the cry of a broken heart, God's ears are tuned to hear our cries in the midst of injustice. And notice James calls God the Lord of Sabaoth. That's a military term. It means the Lord of hosts or the Lord Almighty. James is saying that that when we've endured injustice and when we cry unto God, we're crying unto the Lord our warrior. We're crying unto the Lord of angelic host. We're praying to the the Lord who fights for us. This is the character of God. God will enact perfect judgment and will make things right in his perfect time. Somebody say amen to that. That's how God responds to injustice. How should we respond? Well, there's a number of ways we feel like responding, isn't there? As a believer, it's natural to wonder, where is God in these moments? Why isn't God stopping this? If God fights for us, then why isn't he fighting? We're tempted to take matters into our own hands. If God won't enact justice, then I will. We're tempted to take our frustration out upon other people, oftentimes not even the people that wronged us. We're tempted to try to escape the injustice by running away from it. And if we can't run away from it, we'll just escape it by numbing ourselves from the reality of it. Yet we know that those responses are wrong. Because James offers us a better way to respond to injustice. He tells us this, you need to learn to wait patiently for the coming of the Lord. He says justice is coming. God will make everything right, but you have to wait for it. Verse 7 and 8, look. Be patient, therefore, brethren, under the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman, that's the farmer, waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience for it until he receive the early and latter rain. Be ye also patient. Establish your hearts. In other words, stand firm. For the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. We've seen God's response. Here's the believer's response to injustice. The believer should wait patiently for the Lord's return. 
Hang in there, James says. Be patient. Settle your heart. Stand firm. Because the Lord is coming back. And when he does, he'll bring justice with him. When he does, he'll make everything right. When he does, all of life will be changed to what it should be. Be like the farmer, James says in verse 7. The farmer waits patiently. He hangs in there through the most difficult of seasons and weather patterns because he's waiting for the land to yield its crop. I think James is picturing a small farm owner. The farmer has carefully saved some seed. He's he's planted it in the ground. And now all of his attention is centered on the valuable crop that will come. So he waits. He waits patiently through the early autumn rains which saturate the soil so the new seed can germinate. He waits patiently through the late spring rains which gives the surge of growth to the emerging plant. He waits through the final weeks, maybe living on short rations or skimping on meals, just hanging in there to the moment when the valuable crop comes as his reward. And that must be our posture in the midst of our injustice. We have to learn to hang in there even during the tough days as we wait for Jesus to return and bring justice with him. We have to wait. But notice that James doesn't just make the point that God's or Christ's return is sure. He also intentionally states in verse 8 at the very end that it's soon. He said, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Now you may be tempted to say, but James was saying this thousands of years ago, Pastor. Christians are crazy to keep believing this. Christ still hasn't returned, and yet preachers are still saying it could happen at any moment. At what point do I get permission to believe they're lying to me? Well, think about it like this. If you're going on a long trip with a small child, they love to ask, when are we getting there? To which the parents will answer, we're getting closer. 30 minutes later, they ask the same question. To which we give the same answer. We're getting closer. An hour later, they ask the same question, which we give the same answer. We're getting closer. At some point, our children may begin to think that we're lying to them. It feels to them like we've been saying we're getting closer forever and that we might not actually be getting closer and that we might not be getting to our destination at all. Here's what our children don't realize. Our timeline as parents is on a bigger scale than theirs. We're calculating in terms of hours... They're calculating in terms of minutes and even seconds. For the believer, we sometimes feel like the small child in the back seat. We've been told in scripture our whole life that Jesus is coming back and it's getting closer and closer. But because we've gotten the same answer for so long and it's never happened, we can easily lose faith that Christ's return is actually getting closer. Or is it going to happen at all? Here's what we have to realize. God calculates time differently than we do. Peter says that a thousand years is just one day with the Lord. In our finite minds, we think in terms of minutes and days and weeks. But God thinks in terms of years and decades and millenniums. Here's the truth. You can believe it or you cannot believe it, but here's the truth. Jesus is coming back. And his redemption is drawing nigh. Our redemption is drawing nigh. His return is drawing nigh. 
He is coming. And here's the truth too. It could happen at any moment. James is telling us, be aware of this. Believe this. Keep believing this. And stay patient until it actually happens. That's how we respond to our injustice. God promises this. I'll judge them. I'll have the last word. And the righteous will win. But until I do, here's your response. Wait. Wait. Be patient. Do not take matters into your own hands. Well, pastor, how do I know if I'm doing this? How do I know if I'm waiting for vindication? How do I know I'm doing well at at this imperative in Scripture? Well, James goes on to tell us that when we're truly waiting on the Lord to make things right for us, that two things will happen. I guess they won't happen. We won't complain about our treatment, number one. And we won't compromise the truth, number two. Look at verse nine. Grudge not one against another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. How do you know if you're waiting patiently on the Lord's return? For him to make things right and not taking matters in your own hands like you feel like doing. Here's how. When you're not complaining about how you've been treated. That's when you know you're trusting the Lord. That's when you know he's keeping score. That's when you know that at the end you'll win. To grudge against someone, as James says, means to complain about somebody. To have a spirit of fault finding against another person. Now, let's be honest. This comes easy. It comes naturally for us during times in which we find ourselves on the short end of the stick. When we've been dealt with unfairly or we've been treated unjustly or we've been taken advantage of, we aren't prone naturally to stay positive about it. Our natural inclination is to find someone that will listen to us complain. Or to grudge against that person that wronged us. You know why? Because hurt people hurt people. If we aren't careful, our injustices will turn us into very negative fault finders. We'll become critical and sour and bitter and pessimistic. And James is warning us here to not take our frustrations out on each other. Instead, cry out to God. Pray to the Lord God Almighty and ask Him to take vengeance for you and to make things right for you and then wait patiently for Him to do that. One sign that you're struggling with trusting the Lord to vindicate you is that you find yourself complaining about your situation to others a lot. Whoever will listen. James says waiting patiently means we don't complain about our treatment because we're trusting in the Heavenly Father to take good care of us. Look down at verse 12. But above all things, my brethren, swear not, neither by heaven, neither by the earth, neither by any other oath, but let your yea be yea and your nay nay, lest ye fall into condemnation. The second sign that someone is waiting patiently for the Lord to return, they're not taking matters into their own hands, even though they've been treated unfairly. Watch here. Is they don't compromise their integrity are their honesty in order to prove themselves right. In order to make things easier on themselves. In order to make themselves look more favorable in the eyes of somebody that's connected to both people involved. 
in the midst of their injustice, they don't falsify or distort. They don't misrepresent or fabricate. They don't maneuver or finesse or shade the truth in any way in order to ease the difficulty. James was looking at a situation here where someone under pressure or stress to avoid some hardship or injustice might insist that something is true, even though it isn't. In order to deceive and convince the other person in the conversation, someone might even take an oath and say something like this, I swear to you. Or they may insist on something more than what's necessary in the conversation. They might add this disclaimer, I really mean it. I promise. Just trust me. I cross my heart. God is my witness. They say these things trying to convince the other person in order to get themselves out of a difficulty. But someone who knows the Lord is coming to make things right with them. Someone who knows they'll one day stand before God and judge with themselves will never compromise his integrity or honesty in order to make things easier on themselves or make themselves look better than the person that hurt them. Instead, you can trust this person completely. When he says something is so, it's so. His yes is a truthful yes. His no is a truthful no. There's no exaggeration on his lips. There's no shading the truth coming out of his mouth. These are two things that are true of people who are trusting God and waiting for his justice. They don't complain about their treatment and they don't compromise the truth. Are those things prevalent in your life right now? Are you doing more complaining than crying out to God? Are you talking to your spouse about it more than you're talking to the Lord of Sabaoth? Who are you trusting in right now to give you peace? Your best friend or the Holy Spirit? Who gets the blunt of all of your complaints? God, who should and wants to hear them? Or the people you work with? Are you exaggerating the truth to make you look better than the person that wronged you? Are you distorting it, only giving one side of it? Over speaking about it? These are signs that you might not be trusting God to take care of you. To conclude, James knows how hard this can be. Remember, these people are on a farm. They're working in this crazy heat. And then they don't get paid. The agreement at the front end of this job was that they would get paid a meager wage, but they would get paid. And now they're not. They can't take them to court because they can't afford a lawyer. And if they can't afford one, it's not a good one. They get outpaid and out hustled and out influenced and all this stuff. They're helpless. And then James tells them, don't complain. Really? Don't talk bad about the person that is doing this to me. Really? Endure this. Really? And he says, I got two examples for you. In conclusion, I want you to think of the prophets of God. And I want you to think of a man named Job. Look at verse number 10 in the first part of verse 11. Take my brethren, the prophets 
who has spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering affliction and of patience. Behold, we count them happy which endure. Consider the prophets, he says. They did what God asked them to do. They spoke in the name of the Lord. But speaking God's word, confronting their societies, often brought hardship and suffering to the ones doing the speaking. But James says they were patient in the face of the suffering. They persevered. So let's get more specific. Take the prophet Jeremiah, for example. Jeremiah was arrested because of his public statements. Because of the word of the Lord that he gave his contemporaries. When Jeremiah's trial came, people he had known his entire life stood up and lied and testified against him. They they literally committed perjury in order to spare themselves. Even before the trial began, the judge had already written out his guilty verdict. And when the whole charade was over, when the kangaroo court was dismissed, Jeremiah found himself in a mucky pit. But he was still patient through it all. Take the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel spoke the words God gave him to guide his people during their Babylonian captivity. But at every turn, the older leaders among the people, men with more influence than Ezekiel, contradicted him. They they resisted him. They humiliated him publicly. And while all this was going on, Ezekiel's young wife died. The one person who believed him, the one person who brought him a little bit of joy on earth was now gone. And he was alone in his pain and rejection. But he kept on. He hung in there. Take the prophet Daniel. One day as a child, Daniel saw foreign soldiers smash down the door to his house. They came in, grabbed him roughly by the arm and hauled him away from his family. They were speaking a language he didn't understand. They were taking him and other boys his age off to a foreign country, never to see their families again. He was forced to grow up in that strange culture. He was given a new strange sounding name and he had to learn the foreign language as they were instructing him to serve the nation that had captured him. But Daniel stayed faithful, prayed in the window multiple times a day in the face of death. James says, these are the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. And who patiently persevered through their own injustices. And James says that when we think about them, we don't feel sorry for them. We don't get sad for them. He says we consider them happy for enduring. Meaning every one of these prophets who endured injustice eventually met the Lord and heard the Lord say something like this. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. In those moments, they weren't sad. In those moments, they were happy they chose to endure through the most wicked of injustice. Friend, we don't have to walk around defeated all the time because life is so hard being a Christian. We can endure with happiness knowing that we will be eternally blessed for enduring persecution or hardship or injustice in the name of the Lord. And if the prophet's example isn't enough to convince you, James says this, consider Job. Recall his experience, James says, and you'll see what God's like. Think back to his experience and you'll be able to predict what God has in store for you. You'll see that God is in fact getting closer and closer to pouring out his compassion and tender mercy in your life, even if you're suffering right now. Look at the last part of verse 11. 
Ye have heard of the patience of Job and have seen the end of the Lord. That the Lord is very pitiful, compassionate, tender, helpful, and of tender mercy. What a, what a fitting conclusion. You know Job. A godly man. A man of wealth. A man honored by his contemporaries. A man who raised a large family. And he was grateful for all God's goodness to him. But one day, unknown to Job, Satan began to challenge God about Job. Satan claimed the only reason Job worshipped God was because God had given him a good life. So God accepted the challenge because he knew Satan's accusation wasn't true. He knew that Job loved him for who he was and not for what he had given him. So God gave Satan permission to totally undo Job's circumstances. In one afternoon, Satan was allowed to change Job's life from wealth and joy to poverty and sorrow. In the space of a few hours, Job's net worth and family were lost. Every asset he had, every source of income was stripped from him. Raiders stole his herds and killed his hired hands. A tornado claimed the lives of his children. And it tells us that he was in shock. Job fell on his face before the Lord. He lay there trying to find God. Wanting to know why such overwhelming sorrow and injustice should descend on him. Yet no understanding came to him. But when he finally rose, his answer to other people was this. The Lord gave it and the Lord took it away. And I will continue to bless his holy name. He hung in there. He endured. When Satan saw that, he was infuriated. I'm not finished, he told God. Let me do more. Let me touch his body. Let me affect him physically. Shockingly, God gave Satan permission to affect Job's body. Satan hit Job with this infectious disease that blistered his whole body from his head to his feet, leaving him in unbearable pain every day. Yet when his wife came to him and said, Job, why do you still worship God? Job said this, do we give God the right to only send us good things, but never allow us trouble? To his friends, he said this, though God slay me, yet will I trust him. More than once, Job asked God, why? More than once, in a moment of frustration, he insisted that he hadn't done anything to deserve what happened to him. He asked God for a reason, but he never got an explanation. For the rest of his life, he never learned the reason why those things happened to him. He just tried his best to trust the Lord and wait on him. And you read the end of the book, book of Job that is, and you see how the mercy of God came flowing into his life. The Lord restored Job's financial worth. He even doubled it. Job found himself with even greater influence and honor in his community. Other children were born in his home who were even more of a delight to him. His daughters were known throughout the country for their beauty. He lived to see his great-great-grandchildren. Yet he never learned why he went through a period of such injustice. 
The only thing he learned was I better trust God. Friend, you too may never know the reason for your trouble. Why have I been treated like this? He may never tell you. Why do they disappoint me? He may never tell you. Why do they keep overlooking me? He may never tell you. Why this illness? He may never tell you. Why is my marriage like this? He may never tell you. What you do know is this. Trust God. Your trouble may not have anything to do with you. It may have nothing to do with those around you. It may simply be that God is again showing the evil one that you love him, not for his gifts, nor for his blessing, but for himself. For who he is. The salvation he's given you. Your trial might be allowed by God as a statement to the devil. And God asked you to trust him like Job did. To wait patiently like the prophets did. To believe there's a moment coming when his overwhelming mercy will flood you and all of life will be made right again. So as your pastor, here's the message. Just hang on. Just hang on. Don't grumble. Don't complain. Don't compromise the truth in order to escape your trial. You stand firm. You establish your heart. Don't you run away from God. You run to God. You trust God's justice to prevail. You trust for God's healing to come. And you wait patiently until it does. I want to ask our musicians to come as we prepare to end with a song of worship. Songwriter had it right. When he said, there is coming a day when no heartache shall come. No more clouds in the sky. No more tears to dim the eye. All is peace forevermore on that happy golden shore. What a day, glorious day that will be. There will be no sorrow there. No more burdens to bear. No more sickness, no pain. No more parting over there. And forever I will be with the one who died for me. What a day, glorious day that will be. Let God fight for you today. Refuse to complain, refuse to compromise. Instead, you just wait humbly on the Lord to come get you. For he promises that he will. You look up because your redemption draws nigh. Stand to your feet.